are, this week's conversation, good people, is going to be an absolute treat. My guest is Cody Wellemer of the Wellemer Hat Company. If you don't already know Cody, and you should, he's a seriously good bespoke hatter based in LA, and he's more or less dedicated his life and his career to honing his craft. We recorded this episode in October of last year during Cody's visit to London for the permanent style pop-up. It was the first time I'd met him, and as soon as we'd shaken hands and had a cheeky chinwag about menswear, I knew that it would be daft not to seize the opportunity to interview him for the podcast. Like all the best craftsmen, he's passionate, switched on, and very good fun to chat to. We talk about how he became a hatter, because let's face it, it's pretty niche, the process of hand-making hats that he keeps alive today, and we explore his approach to his work more generally. I really enjoyed this interview, and I hope that you will too. Well, Cody, Cody Wellmer, how about this? Thanks for taking some time out. Absolutely, my honour, um, my honour. I'm loving this. We've we've sort of jumped on this opportunity while you're in town. Yeah. We met on Monday night. We yes. shared a chocolate mousse. We we did a, a quite a big ball of it at that. You know, it was a tub. Uh, it was uh, yes, it was a lovely moment. Yeah, it was uh, in Brasriesdale uh, with all the boys, and um, yeah. now it's the Friday, and we are it's here. The Friday, full week. Um, yes. You've had a good, you've had a good time at the permanent style. It's been fantastic. Up. It's been uh, great to see friends uh, from around the world and get to hang out a bit. The weather's been, uh, at least to me, fantastic <laughs> and uh, enjoyable, and uh, it's uh, phenomenal hat weather. So it's uh, it's been a great week. It's, it's yeah, ideal. Yeah, absolutely, hat weather, absolutely. Um, well. Thanks again for taking some time out, yeah, Cody, because no, I've, I've followed your work on Instagram for ages, and we have corresponded. Instagram's quite the world, you know? You just you meet so many people, and, and you talk, but it, it's phenomenal when you get to, you know, shake a hand and, and put a face it's, to it. It's and, quite strange, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's, you know, it sort of gives me an insight into what it must have been like to be a pen pal at some <laughs> point. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, it's very true. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, a question for you. Sure. Uh, for that, Shoot. that is that's what everyone's waiting for Dive instead on in. of me waffling. Yeah. Um, how does a person become a bespoke hatter today? Even even by the standards of this lovely podcast, it is a niche. Yeah. Skill. It is quite uh, unique. It is quite niche, uh, as you said. I think, at least for me, I think for any craft, there there is passion that is the founding piece to anything. So for me, I think that's what it is. I mean, I think um, I had a passion to work with my hands, whatever that it was at a young age. And um, along the way, hats became, you know, pivotal to me, just in style and what kind of a hat represented from the past and all that kind of stuff. So growing up and getting older, putting those two things together, working with hands and hats kind of just came together so I mean for me that's kind of where the passion stemmed from and how it all got started um in a quick nutshell but then I mean getting started into hats isn't the most easy thing these days no um there's not the biggest market you know anymore um so it does take a little bit of a leap and a little bit of a risk but um at the end of the day I find it quite rewarding so so you realized sort of quite early on that you wanted to work with your hands yeah, I think, um, I mean, growing up um, as, you know, a young child, I think being in the backyard with grandfather and, you know, taking apart old radios and just working with things, you know, building little racetracks for, you know, little car toys and whatnot and just running them. And, but building things, whatever that was, you know, in Southern California, um, 
you know, building like little surfboards and stuff like that out of wood and carving them down and shaping them down and, you know, um, putting the lacquer, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just kind of the, the way I grew up, I guess, was kind of like that, um, at least with my grandfather and whatnot. And then uh, just just finding as I grew up the way that things were made, whatever it was, a car to clothing to a bag to whatever it may be. I just find it fascinating. So putting those two things together at, you know, a certain age um, with hats was uh, just kind of the, the jumping point. Uh, that's super cool. Why hats? I mean, did your granddad wear a hat? Did you discover a hat in a vintage shop and fall in love with it? What I would say it? it's more the latter, um, but not exactly. So, I mean, I think for me, it, it first came of uh, falling in love with old music and old film, like silent film, you know, 20s, and uh, you know, silent film like Chaplin and Buster Keaton. I don't know how popular it ever was out here, but, you know, film noir from the 40s and 50s, and then, you know, music from the 20s, 30s, and then a little bit into the, you know, later rock and roll of the 50s and 60s and whatnot. But if we go earlier into the earlier part of the century, you know, the 20s and 30s, everybody wore a hat. Mm. Um, you know, you look at old photographs, you look at album covers of the musician, you look at um, the films themselves, whatever it was, even though they're all in black and white, it's it's all, you see hats everywhere. Um, so for me, the hat kind of became symbolic of that era. So when I would see a hat in today's world, it's like, oh, there's something about that that is something, you know, they're bringing something from the past into the present. Um, so the hat to me, whatever style hat didn't really matter at that point was just symbolic to me of the era that I kind of became infatuated with, you know, just the music, the the lifestyle. And it wasn't even really about the clothing. I mean, the music and all that stuff was fantastic, but it was really, to me, the, the culture of that time, mm. um, just the way that life was lived. It wasn't so much, I mean, I know we're in this world and we enjoy talking about, you know, the cloth and, you know, oh, what do you wear, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. All this, you know, it's a little bit dumb, Geeking but... out. Yeah, exactly. A little bit of the nerdiness. Um, but to me back then, it was, and I'm sure there was still some of that, you know, what are you wearing for the winter and summer, yada, yada. But it was just, um, life was lived differently back then. You know, like we you know, talked about in the beginning, there wasn't cell phones or anything. People aren't buried in their phones. It was just kind of about living an honest wage and working hard for your family. And um, it wasn't about who's wearing what or doing what or who's on the you know, status of, of a company or whatever it was. It was just, you know, honest work, working hard and uh, kind of living your life um, true to your family and whatnot. So I think the hat and that time period, just kind of all of that, it just was, was in a bit of yeah. It. I was just in a bit of a mix, and that's kind of what kind of stole my heart, if you will. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's kind of what you know propelled me into the hats and, and that time period, if you will. I absolutely love that. Uh, we we have a similar way in to sure. this funny little world that we now inhabit because yeah. it was jazz music that got me into. Oh, clothes. phenomenal! Yeah, great. And uh, I think you're you're one of the maybe three people I've spoken to sure. in my whole life right. who's been like, yeah, 20s and 30s yeah. music. Yeah, 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 yeah. I listened to a lot of the really early hot jazz bands yeah. and jazz orchestras, yeah. like really early recordings. Yeah, yeah phenomenal. And I freaking love them. Everyone yeah. else just thinks I'm weird. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, people look at me when I, you know, when they come in the store and there's something, you know, spinning from the 20s or something, they're like, Man, what, I walk into my grandfather's house or something? You know, like, they just, they <laughs> yeah. sometimes they don't fully, they enjoy the ambiance, if you will. But I mean, at the same time, some people, you know, Music's a little different these days. So Indeed, it's a yeah, it's a it's just a different thing. Well, but it's nice. We think it's cool. That's right. Uh, <laughs> jolly good. <laughs> so okay, so hats came to kind of represent an era that you were yeah. fascinated with. Yeah. Um, at what point in your kind of I don't know teenage years or sure. whatever did yeah. you kind of go right? 
I love hats. I've been exploring hats. Yes. I want to make hats professionally. So going back, I guess, a little bit, eh, whatever it may be. So, I mean, growing up playing baseball, um, I guess similar to cricket, if we will, out here. <laughs> yeah. um, but, I mean, you know, just always wearing hats, ball caps to flat caps to, you know, and then, you know, beanies and knit into fedoras and stuff like that. Um Along the way, I started working for a American hat company that um, I won't go too much into the details or say names or anything like that, cool. but kind of prides themselves as an advert of uh, a family of, of generational hat makers, if you will. Um, so I was like, oh, phenomenal. And I started working at the store and I ended up taking over the store and running the store for them and all that. And the goal in my mind was to one day transition into the family factory to potentially make the hats for or with, I should say, this this company, this family. And along the way, I kind of found out that they don't make any of their own hats, they don't own their own factory, um, they're made, you know, in China, some, a lot of them, some of them are made in America at one of the oldest, you know, factories in America, but still, it wasn't this, bit of, this bit of family. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and I was kind of, you know, saddened by that a bit. So I, at that point, I was like, okay, you know, not what I thought, let's take a step back and let's reevaluate a little bit. Maybe... We try this, we try that. And I was like, you know, why don't I just start researching myself how this craft, the, the actual trade of it back in, the, in their heyday. And that's kind of what I did. I uh, just started researching how hats were once made, the tools, the craft, the materials, the techniques, you know, kind of all of it. Anything I could get, just, you know, dive deep into it, which is great because, I mean, it's what I love from I collected vintage clothing. And that's also what got me into a lot of this. But diving for vintage clothing and really deep you know, digging for certain labels and brands from certain eras and stuff like that. So it's kind of the same thing, but with a whole new actual trade and craft. It was digging into these old companies of how they got started, what machinery did they use, what, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then once, you know, diving into it all, that's kind of then what propelled me into my own. And I think it for sure was a leap because, mm. I mean, like I said in the beginning, it's hats, there's not a huge market for it anymore. I mean, tailoring... I say this a lot, but I mean, really any clothing, shoes to even, you know, watches and stuff like that. You, you need to be able to tell time. You have to wear shoes, you know, whether you're wearing a trainer or, you know, 5,000 pound, you know, bespoke loafer or something like that. You know, you, you need shoes. You need clothing on you. But hats, you do not need. Mm. You just don't. You got an umbrella and you don't need. There, there's want and there's need. And they're two separate things. So for me, it was a very risky thing to take on. But I just... I think risk prohibits a lot of people from doing what they want. Um, and I know it can be a scary thing, but at the end of the day, if you don't do what you love, then you end up not enjoying your life to, you know, it's fullest. So I kind of just took that risk and, and that leap and jumped in and, uh, now we're in London. Wicked. Yeah. You know, it, um, it's kind of a crazy road, but it's been nice. Yeah. Thank God you did. Yeah. So that, that's a thread that, that actually has come through a, a number of interviews we've had with craftsmen so far yeah. is there comes a point where that craftsman, whoever he or she may be, has sure. just gone, fuck it, let's do it. Right. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. I mean, at some point you have to really with anything, even a craftsman or not, if you're starting a company and you have a design team or you have a factory you're working with at some point, you got to leave things behind to really go full force because you can't give it a hundred percent if your left foot is in another business or another job or whatever it is, mm. you got to be able to give it a hundred percent. Otherwise you won't know it's full potential. You're only going to know half its potential if you're given 50% of it, you know, mm. it's your time or whatever it may be. So at some point there's the risk. And after a year or two of flops, then it flops and, and you turn back around and you figure something else out. You go back to what you're doing or start something new. Mm. 
But for me, and I think for a lot of friends and makers around the world, you know, if we never took that leap and that jump, then we would, you know, never know. And the, the kind of unknown kind of outweighs the the risk of it all, you know. Yeah. So it's good. Awesome. Good take leaps. Um, dwelling on the the earlier period. Yeah. Uh, I was, read something that I thought was quite interesting in a, in an interview when I was researching for this. Yeah. And uh, I think you found it very, very hard to find anyone to teach you or mentor you. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, kind of the same thing in the sense that, I, that I've been talking about how it's such a small market. It's also a small market for the craftsman itself, if you will. So there's no school for this anymore. You can't go to university. You can't mm. even really take a small course on the side for this anymore. Um, there's really nothing because it's so irrelevant to the world, if you will. So it's a hard thing to find to learn. Um, so the only way to truly learn is apprenticeship, like a lot of different crafts and whatnot. You know, you need to learn from a master or whatever it may be, or a teacher. Um, but for whatever it may be in the hat world, and I understand a little bit more now sitting here, and I'll explain that in a minute, but it's hard to fully give out information to anybody. Hats, um, despite what I've been saying the last few minutes on the last, you know, maybe three to five years have been a little bit more trendy in fashion. Mm. Um, you know, just wider brims, maybe a little bit more distressing or Western styles, kind of more artistic style hats versus classically styled hats. Um, so I find at least in the States and I know a couple guys in Europe and, and whatnot as well that want to be a hat maker because it's a cool trend. Right. Um, and not because they have a true passion for where this craft comes from and where they want to take it. They just want to be, you know, make a name for themselves, be cool, start a brand, have an Instagram, take it, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I understand that more now where I'm at. So when I got into it, I reached out to every single person. I researched and looked after every single person around the world. I was willing to move across the country or around the world, whatever it may be. Um, and kind of everyone was like, no, we don't really do that. We don't want to give out information. Okay, can I, you just tell me where to get the material? How, where, where can I find this tool? Where can I, anything? And, you know, and really, really closed. Really, really closed. And um, again, like I said, I understand that more now where I'm sitting because I get all the time now people calling me and emailing me. Where can I get this? Where can I get that? Can I train? Can I do this? And majority of the time, it, they're just... I can tell right off the bat and after talking to them, I'll give them a little bit of time like, okay, let's figure this out. Um, but usually it's just trying to, you know, be that cool thing instantly. Mm. They don't want to put in the time. They want to work in the shop for two days and then go off and make their own company, whatever it may be. Um, so it's hard now for me to get out information because of that same reason. Um, however, when you find that right person, um, it's kind of a special moment. So, I mean, I had a guy two and a half years ago from Tokyo that moved to California into the States specifically to seek out hat makers. He came to Los Angeles and found me and all this kind of stuff. And right away I knew he was something special because he came from Tokyo. You know, he, he was putting an effort already with, he was taking a risk. It was a pilgrimage. Exactly. Without any reward off the bat, without any, um, you know, certainty of anything. It's like, okay, let's figure this out. Come by the shop. Let's figure it out. And long story short, he ended up staying with me for about two years um, he just moved back to Tokyo this last weekend to figure some things out. We'll see if he moves back anyways. It's cool, so for though. me, you know, it's fantastic. So for me, it's really extremely hard to find anybody, um, because of that reason, because there was a generation, pretty much all the hat makers, you know, were 40 to 60, maybe 70 years old. So a youngster like me coming in, like, Hey, I want to make a hat. They're eh, a little skeptical. Mm -hmm. Um, what was that like, though? I mean, how did you react to that? Was it crushing, or it, did it make you go, no, 
piss off fellas. I'm going to actually do this. <laughs> no, right. Um, both. It, it was crushing in the beginning, you know, and then it, nobody wants to be told no. Nobody wants to be told, I'm not going to teach you. You're not worth it. All that kind of stuff. Um, so in the initial no, it's like, ouch. But then the drive and the fire got bigger and okay, forget it. Screw you. I'm going to, you know, continue. I'm going to push harder now to find the next best thing to find another person. It's not going to stop me. Your no is not going to say no to me. You know, I'm just going to keep going. Um, so it was difficult, but I say all this and after X amount of time, when I gained a little bit of respect in the industry in my earlier days of doing this and they realized some of the old timers, um, this, this kid's here, you know, he, he's not one of the, the trendy people or whatever, um, which I hope I'm not and will never be. <laughs> um, then they started opening up a little bit and I got a few tidbits here or there, or I would send them a hat that I made or tried to make and, you know, they would kind of evaluate it and, you know, okay, try this or try that or whatever. So then along the way, you know, X amount of time later, they opened up a little bit because they realized I was more in it for the respect of the craft and not to be some cool Cool. guy or whatever. Um, So eventually there was some, but mostly I will say it's been a lot of self-taught, a lot of trial and error, um, a lot of, you know, staying up till 3.30 a.m., just crying, literally, you know, bloody fingers because I can't figure out how to get this needle in properly, you know, all this kind of stuff through the felt and, you know, just long, long nights. Um, So it's been... It's been a journey, um, a lot of reverse engineering, taking, you know, taking my vintage collection from the 30s, 40s and 50s of hats and reverse engineering it. So taking it apart, you know, taking this stitch out and kind of peeling it back and OK, they kind of did that and did this and, you know, essentially taking the part, hat apart, putting it back together, taking it apart, putting it back together, kind of learning that way. That's awesome. So it's been a lot of learning from the past, from that aspect, learning from the present, from a few of the old timers and then a lot of just drive from just trying different things, getting after it. And even now, I mean, I think I make an, a decent hat. Um, but I think if any, speaking for myself specifically, but any craftsman, if you plateau and you say, I make the best, I'm good. We're good with where we're at. I think it's a scary place to be. You know, I think it's always, at least for me, I hope to always be learning. I hope to always be growing. I hope to always be wanting to make a better product, um, than the next one. So, I mean, I hope to, you know, I'm still learning. I hope to always be learning. I think there's something special about that, you know, a new way of doing it or a better way of doing it or even a quicker way of doing it for that matter, but in a better um, manner, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of where where that, you know, started and, and how I got into it with the actual getting into it with learning. Awesome. So, I mean, yeah. what a fabulous, uh, fabulous kind of narrative and the fact that you clearly didn't give up and you just sort of innovated yeah, your way into right. the industry. And yeah. went, okay, well, if you won't show me, I'm going to take apart something. And it, I yeah. love that. I think that's tremendous, Cody. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's been, um, it's been a journey. For for my benefit, because this is, um, I, I will freely admit this, it's slightly <laughs> terrifying, a gap in my yeah. menswear knowledge. Fair. Can you loosely whiz me through the process of, of hand-making a hat? Yeah, no, very, yeah, we'll, we'll go in a nutshell. So, I mean, um, I go through one of the oldest and the last um, felt manufacturers in America. It's a family factory. It's, uh, I, I say this uh, as in fur felt. Um Quality hats are made out of fur, either European hair or beaver, sometimes a little bit of mink or a blend of the two or three and stuff like that. Um, so you, you you get the fur um, and the felting process is a separate process from what I do. 
um, but it's a beautiful process and I, I visit my factory as often as I can and you know these machines are big and old and they were built from Rolls Royce and stuff like that and just beautiful old stuff like that. Um, so nonetheless, the, the felt comes to me um, and most of my block collection is anywhere from 70 to 100 years old, give or take. Um, I have a block maker that kind of fills some size gaps when I'm buying a vintage collection of blocks or something like that and there's a size missing or there's a crack or something. I mean, that's awesome. I did not realize you use vintage blocks. Yeah, I would say 90% of my tools are roughly 100 years old. Um, oh. And it's fun to, and like I said, there's something very special to me about carrying the past to the present and keeping this alive, not only from making a hat, but the tools itself. There's so many times I go on eBay or Etsy now looking for clothes or blocks even for that matter. And there's a certain style block called a flange, and my wife calls them donuts because they're it's like a wood donut, if you will, and that's how the brim is formed of a hat. That's how the brim, of a, um, yeah, is blocked. So it sort of goes over the crown, yeah, and... upside down, and you know it takes this curved shape. Um, and there's so many times I go on there now, and people are selling them as picture frames because there's you know this <laughs> opening, or they'll split the block in half, saw it in half, and bookends, you know, for a bookshelf and. I tear up every time yeah, a little bit, man. you know, you know, there's not many of these around anymore. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I mean, most of my tools are old. Um, I'm very lucky. Sometimes I find them one off at flea markets and Ebays and antique stores. And then sometimes I get a call now that I'm somewhat known in this antique world um, from an antique dealer across the world or country that, hey, we just found a warehouse from the 1920s that closed down in 1947 um, and they refurbished hats. We found 75 blocks. Do you want them? And so sometimes it's very large collections of family history um, or just a company history or something like that. And then one time, sometimes it's just one-off pieces. So that's, again, I enjoy the journey of, of finding and, and it's a treasure hunt with all this kind of stuff. So You're almost a curator as well in that respect. You know, you're preserving. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a strong word to use. For, I, weird to think of myself that way. But in some way, yes. I mean, you come into my store and it's somewhat of a... I don't want to say museum, but the whole back wall of my entire store is these blocks to be, I mean, they have to be stored, but they also get to be displayed in a very nice way. So it has this almost romance of all this beautiful wood being the entire wall of my store. But people look and they're like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so nice. Look at all that wood. I'm like, yeah, that's how your hat is made. And yeah. They, and they kind of, you know, that's super go cool. weak at the knees after that. Like, really? You know, they don't fully understand it sometimes. So. It's nice to be able to be using these tools, for sure. Stylish folk, you know we're partnering with Thomas Mason this season. Well, this Saturday, we're going to tell you why. We are releasing the first of two dedicated bonus episodes exploring the brand's history, philosophy, and impressive focus on innovation. Thomas Mason was founded in 1796 in Lancashire, but today is owned by the Albini Group in Italy. So we travelled to the mill in Albino to get a first-hand insight into what makes Thomas Mason cloths quite so special. I've been wearing the stuff for years but never visited before, so to get an insight into Albini's approach and process was fascinating. They have a think tank, for heaven's sake. I mean, there's an entire team focused on developing new technologies, materials and processes at the mill, creating fabrics that really are built for the future. It's like nothing else I've seen. If you're as intrigued as I was, check your podcast feed this Saturday morning and listen in. We'll see you then. Cool.
So yeah. you have you have a piece of felt. You have. Oh right, sorry. Yes, <laughs> right. yes. So so we take this block, um, and there's a number of different blocks. Blocks have different tapers, have different heights to them, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I take a block depending on what style hat I'm making, um, which is the initial size and circumference of this hat and the initial shape of this hat, like as it tapers and all that. It gets blocked. Um, the felt, you know, I wet it down a lot. Extreme um, large bellows of steam go into the hat. So a lot of steaming, a lot of wetness. We pull it over the block. Or when I say we, I don't know why I say myself. Um, <laughs> it gets pulled over the block. Um, we do that a couple times and then... Um, dry it out you know usually two days or so let the felt completely dry out and it and it it needs to be really really sodden to take a new shape exactly so it dries it's taking that new form it's taking that new shape it's kind of not cementing but you know it's just taking a new mold cool um then it you know dries out takes that shape then it goes through while it's still on the block a process in the hat world known as pouncing which is essentially sanding so we take the fur it comes to us kind of long and shaggy um, and I, I sand it down to, into a nice, soft, you know, even essentially the final finish of the hat, which mm-hmm. is the most important part of hat making because, um, A, most hat companies, even hat makers now are doing this by machine and stuff like that, which is fine. Um, but I do it all by hand. But it's, it's I think, a finish of a hatter's hat is kind of their signature, um, you know, maybe like a different apron or a different vamp on a shoe for a shoe, you know, whatever, maybe a different type of stitch. Um, the finish of a hat is kind of the, the hatter's signature. If it's a nice finish on a hat, the color's nice and even. It's a nice soft velvety. It's soft to the hand. It's malleable. It's a nice hat. You know, if it's kind of blotchy and uneven and the pouncing process, something went wrong, but they were okay with it and let it go out the door kind of thing. So it goes through pouncing. Um, from there, I shape the crown by hand, just, you know, whatever shape and style we're doing to the crown of the hat. Trim the brim down um, to whatever width of brim we're doing. And then all the sewing begins. So sewing the sweatband together. So cutting the sweatband to size. Um, most companies, whether anywhere around the world, are hat sizes seven and a quarter, or Europe and England and whatnot is more 57, 58, 59, that kind of thing. Um, I go to like the nearest even millimeter um, or 16th of an inch in America. Essentially your exact size. Mm. Cut the sweatband to your exact size. Sew the sweatband together, sew the sweatband into the felt um, all by hand, and then the the trimming, uh, the ribbon, grow grain ribbon, um, is then sewn onto the hat by hand. And you even use, I discovered the other day at the pop-up, you even yeah. use vintage ribbons, which yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah, I have a very, I mean, not a huge collection, but I have a very uh, a treasure chest, if you will, of my, my pride and joy, my little collection of vintage ribbon that is a little bit more expensive to use for the client, but um, it's it's fun to be able to say, that your hat was made by hand and the ribbon whatnot is from the 1930s truly or whatever it may be. And it's usually a better quality ribbon. Most things back then, in my opinion, were made a little bit better mm. um, and a little finer detail and whatnot. But, yeah, so I have a collection of vintage ribbon to choose from if you like. Or, uh, you know, there's a mill as well that I go through for classic, you know, modern ribbon as well. So that's all attached. And then um, and then the liner goes and lasts on the inside of the hat by hand. And then, like I said, at the very, very end is is the flanging process, which is the blocking of the, the shape of the brim. And then from there, final steam and uh, final fitting, we're good to go. Absolutely awesome. Yeah, so very quick nutshell. but uh, And that's all roughly 8 to 10 hours um, spread out over roughly a week's time. I do about five, maybe six hats a week. Um, so while one's drying, I'm starting to sew. And while I'm finishing sewing that one, I'm prepping the next one, you know, whatever it is. And so, it's that drying process of the felt that takes the time. Yeah, mostly. Um, the pouncing each hat is maybe an hour and a half. If I'm doing the, the binding, which is the ribbon along the brim mm-hmm. of the hat, that's 
again, it's by hand. So it takes uh, an hour and a half to two to do. Um, I have a lot of friends in different industries that enjoy vintage machinery or just machines in general. And they say, Cody, why don't you just bloody get a machine? It'll take you three minutes flat. And uh, I really enjoy sitting in the back and having some good music on and being able to say my hats are 100% handmade. I enjoy but I'm able to pay attention to each stitch and the details. And it's also kind of, you know, methodical, if you will, just sitting back there and sewing and someone, you know, the bell rings on the door and I come in and, you know, take a break. And, you know, so I'm not, my hand hurts a little bit by the end of it and my <laughs> back a bit, but, you know, it's a, it's just a nice way of, of uh, paying attention to the details of my hats, I think. So, um, yeah, eight to 10 hours spread out over the week or so. And, uh, and then we start the next batch. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really, really fascinating. Yeah. And completely by hand. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's I, uh, not the most efficient or the most, uh, I'm not in this to make millions for sure or that much money at all. But uh, I have a, uh, you know, it's an honest work for sure. I get to provide for my family and do what I love and have a store that's wonderful and get to travel the world. So I have nothing to complain about. I'm very into that. Yeah. I also, you know, that there is a handmade is a word that gets used in luxury far too much. Yes, I agree when, with that. When you say handmade, yeah. it's handmade. Yeah, it's very, I appreciate um, that. It's very true, though. Tremendous. Um, why do you think men find hats so tricky to get into today? I find women to be a lot easier, actually. I have a lot of female clientele as well, um, which okay. some people don't realize because I have such a masculine kind of aesthetic in the shop, and it's dark, and it's wood, and... <laughs> Whiskey. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. you know, cigars, you know, you walk in. Um, you know, I think I was actually just speaking um, with Oliver's in town and Simon and um, back at the store a minute ago, and um, I think it's because the first thing you look at when you see someone is usually if you have somewhat of a manner in their eyes or their face, whatever it may be, the first thing you see is their face. And typically you're used to nothing on your head or not seeing anything on someone else's head. So any sort of jacket, whether it be or anything on your body, a t-shirt, a jacket, an overcoat, you're used to something on your body, feet, you're used to a sock, a shoe, something on your feet. But your head, you're used to looking at somebody, you're looking at yourself and there's nothing on your head. So when something goes on your head, a hat, it's very out of the ordinary to you. Um, I think people just get a little uneasy with it. It's just a little uncomfortable off the bat because there's this thing on your head that's foreign that you don't fully understand why there's something on your head. There might as well be a, a little cat, you know, curled up on there or something <laughs> hanging out. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's not comfortable to you. So it does take a little bit of getting used to. Um, and I also think that majority of time, especially in today's day and age, it's it's mass produced it's going to any company that's just you know this style and they have all the sizes they've got stock in the back or whatever and they're just made by machine which is it's not about the craft of it but it's about you put it on it's that size and you have four sizes to choose from in that style where if the hat doesn't fit right a it's going to look silly on you not making you feel comfortable because there's something off and you can't pinpoint it and b most ready to wear hats are in certain styles and they're not made to frame your face and your body and people don't realize that there's a lot more that goes into a hat than you think you can just pick up a hat and put it on it's a hat and i didn't like it i get so many people even into the the trunk show this week and especially at home walking into my store oh beautiful store love what you do i've never liked hats i've never looked good in a hat whatever and i say i get it that's fine but there is a hat for you if you allow me to do what I do and, and frame you well with the hat. So people don't realize that there's different tapers and different brim widths and different things about a hat, different, you know, pinch widths in the front of the crown that 
will frame your face better than others. So a lot of times when someone just picks up a hat at any store and puts on their head and they think they look silly, they probably do because it hasn't a fit well and b been proportionally in harmony with your face and your body. So I think it's hard for people, men or women, to get into hats for that reason. They don't realize there's a lot more that goes into a hat, much like a lapel, you know, to different body frames and stuff like that, or, you know, whatever may be a gorge line. Um, to frame somebody's face well, people don't realize that that's a thing that's, for a that's hat. That's what it's supposed to They just think I'm do. making them a hat, a very blanketed statement, and it's going to look the same as every other hat. Um, I, so I think that's why it's a little tricky for people to get into at the first jump. Th that's quite a refreshing thing to hear as well, simply because I think I fall into that camp of, of consumer who loves the idea of wearing a hat. I have had two uh, off the off the rack sure. hats right. from, from quite good hatters, you know, yeah. German street hatters. Yeah. And I wear them and I like them, but I never feel completely comfortable yeah. in them. And sure. I'm sure yeah. that's because, you know, I'd like the crown to be a tiny bit taller. Right. I'd like the felt to be a bit, you know, there's, there's always a niggle, be, yeah. right? I mean, there is also, I mean, like I said, even if I nail it and I do my best work and it's framed you perfectly, in my opinion, every, the fit is spot on and everything, there still is, because it's still so foreign, there's still that little bit of leap of comfortability that you have to get into. You need to wear it a few times, look at yourself in the mirror a couple of times to start getting comfortable with it. And once you get a compliment or two walking down the road and you, you, know, you see yourself and you get you know, comfortable, then it becomes very natural. Mm. But it's still, even if it's perfect, for somebody that's never worn a hat, very uncomfortable with a hat, even if it is perfect for you, there is still that little bit of a leap of comfortability that you need to dive into there there will always be that anything with anything new um you know in, I, I, in life i feel I'm, but once you get to it then uh typically you can never take it off yeah great <laughs> yeah <laughs> i need to get to that point yeah i once had a hat blow off on the tube mm. and get run over by a tube train and that was one of the most humiliating experiences <laughs> of my life not see, on a packed passport. see humility to <laughs> me that can tell a story though so to me the most fascinating thing about a hat is i believe a hat tells your story. I think so many people, I understand hats can be expensive when you're dealing with somebody like myself. Um, it's a little bit of an investment and I get that. And so many times they come to pick up their hat or whatever it may be. And they say, Oh, I can't wait to wear this till the next wedding or for this event. I want to wear it two times a year. And why do you do that? Like it doesn't fulfill the purpose of the hat. The, you know, to me, a hat most importantly overall is a tool back at the late 1800s to the 1950s, whatever it may be. Well, maybe into the 1950s, it got more stylistically trendy and fashionable. But anyways, um, a hat to me has always been a tool for cowboys, for the West, um, whatever it may be, you know, for protection from elements such as rain, snow, sun, um, all that kind of stuff. So if a hat is just used stylish, and a hat is stylish and fashionable, and I get it, but the ultimate thing is functionality and utilitarianism of a hat so i guess what i'm trying to say is um you should live in it you should live in it you know you, you don't get scared of it you you allow you know if you're smoking a cigar and you put it on your lap and a little ash falls off and you you freak out because you just spent you know 600 pound on a hat and you're worried about sure i get it you want to keep your hat clean and whatnot but if you're traveling the world and you've got these little marks and for me, if my hat flew off in the tube and it got a little beat up, you know, and a little grimy, I personally would love that because I have a story to tell from when I was in London um, or whatever it may be. I believe a more well-worn hat um, that has someone's true DNA and story to tell in it is so much more beautiful and elegant 
than a brand new, clean, perfect hat on someone's head. Um, I think that's also more elegant than a hat that has been prematurely aged and weathered. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Fake, yes, exactly fake right. Fake aging process. Exactly right. No, absolutely. And to that point, too, if your hat falling off in the tube, a well-made hat with the finest quality materials can always be rebuilt. If it goes through the tube and truly gets run over and squashed and it's you know beat up, I can fully take it apart, reblock it, and put it back together. Like you know, there may be you know a couple scuffs and marks and stains or whatever it may be, but we can fully reblock it into being the shape and style of what it originally was. Yeah. As long as the quality level is See, where it needs to be. Even that's awesome. Sadly, that was not the case for my hat. They would not pick it up for me. <laughs> yeah. and I was not going to like cause a scene it, yeah. in like Bond Street tube. It on, left like, its death uh, in, in the it, rails there. Sadly, yeah. it okay. met its end. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Now, uh, a, con- a contrary question for you, just because okay. I'm curious to see sure. uh, what you think of it. Uh, met you twice now. Sure. Love chatting. You seem like yeah. a very chilled guy. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm <not> sure. <laughs> right. Is there anything that gets you riled up out there? Um, you know, to be honest, not much. I think, um, I think unauthenticity can get me a little riled up, not in the sense of, you know, pissed off or angry or, you know, I want to kill you kind of thing. But <laughs> I think if, if something or someone is even being unauthentic with the way that they're charging or an unfair value of what they're charging um, can get me riled up. If something is worth a certain amount, but they, for whatever reason, because they think they're cool, can charge triple the price, that can, you know, tickle my feathers a little bit. Um, Or if someone, I think if someone just doesn't know who they really are, um, or or I actually scratch that, if they they know kind of how they're wired, if they have a dream to do something, um, whatever it is, start a bakery, um, be a teacher, whatever it is. Mm. But they aren't doing anything to move forward with that. Um, I think passion to me is very important. Um, I love when people go after the passions and I try and partner with people that go after the passions and do anything I can to help them, friends or you know whatever it is. Um, so I mean, there's nothing that gets me like really, you know, if someone yells at me in the street, like I just, whatever, you know, that's fine. There's nothing, you know, physically that gets me going. Um, but I think somebody that, you know, has this potential to be this wonderful thing, whatever it is, and just sits around and sits in the office and does nothing about it. That gets me riled up because I just want them to, to fulfill who they were kind of created to be and just all this stuff. So um, that gets me more going than anything because mm. um, I just want to be like, let me hold your hand and get there. And I understand some people don't have the drive that I have to get there, but let me help you partner with somebody that has that momentum and the drive to get there. You have the dream and the vision. How can we help you get there? But if you just, oh, I want to, you know, open a beautiful Airbnb one day in the hillside of England or whatever it is, and you kind of just sit there and you sit in the office, it's like, well, what are you doing about it? Mm. Like, let's do something about this, you know? There has to come a point, doesn't that, where you do it? Yeah, exactly. And even, like, for more, not political things, but, you know, more just morality things, you know, if something's going wrong or whatever, if there's something you feel about it and you're just sitting there talking about it, what does that do? You know, like, yeah, you know, like, don't talk about it, do something about it, whatever it is, you know, like, I think so, maybe that gets me riled up. People just sitting around not doing much. And that's fine. If you want to be lazy and you claim to be lazy and that's all you want to do, you want to be a catch potato? Fine. You know, you, you do that. Um, but if you, you have this vision and I, and I feel that you were wired and, and created to be something, you know, this thing and you're sitting around that, that can tickle me a bit. Yeah. yeah. I, I understand that. I think 
one of one of uh, the really interesting conversations we had in season two of the podcast was the Stoffer episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With uh, Nick and Agesh, because that really, really got me thinking about my own personal spending habits and uh, yeah. the way that I just move through the world and the way I consume. Right. And they sort of they made the very, very good point that you know there is so much talk about sustainability yeah, and exactly. consuming responsibly, but we all actually do just have to do something even if it's only a tiny yeah, thing exactly right um which i have been trying my best to do yeah and, but and there's so always baby steps though i mean i'm not saying you know solve world hunger tomorrow or whatever it is but you know it's just taking like little steps or little changes throughout your day to get to wherever it is mm. whatever the end goal is to do that you know yeah um, be proactive yeah i love that i'm like you i'm a doer yeah um, you know and it's not that I don't know what the opposite of a doer is, an undoer, and whatever it is. <laughs> it's not like that person pisses me off and like, oh, you suck because you're not a doer. It's not that. It's just the doer that doesn't do is, you know. It's a sad, like, it's a sad thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, the other thing in, in that little part of the conversation that I, I completely agree with is I really struggle with uh, hype-based sort of pricing. Yeah, big time. Um, I'm, I really struggle with it. And I, I, I can't apply this to hats, but, you yeah. know, I have got to the point where I am such a geek and I'm exposed to so much tailoring right. that I know the vast majority right. of tailoring workshops in Europe now. Right. I've either tried or seen the product. Sure. I know where it's made. Yeah. I could give you the cost, the rough cost price of <laughs> right. most brands. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, and you know, it's so difficult when you walk into, I don't know, a, a shop or even a some sort of preview. Right. And you kind of know, okay, I know how much that costs, mm -hmm. roughly. Sure. I know what your manufacturing costs are. Yeah, right. So how does this fit? Right, you know, exactly. I, I, I mean, at some point, you're just paying for the name. And, I, you know, paying to wear X, mm. whatever that is. And that's something that I never really understand. Um, you know, if you're just wearing a brand, like, what's the point of it, I guess? If you don't enjoy the actual... I mean, maybe you do enjoy the clothing to an extent, but... If you're spending X to wear just a cool brand, I just don't understand the point of that. To have that label in your closet, like good for you. I, I just yeah. don't fully get it, you know. Versus spending that amount of money on maybe a smaller maker that's trying to get into it or, or whatever it is. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So I mean, again, it, it comes thing. back to sort of trying to be a bit more conscientious, right? It, absolutely. I um, I I think there are way more consumers like you and I out there today sure. than big brands. Right, think or realize. Right, um, I think it's definitely getting tougher for big brands to justify their pricing structures yeah. and to market themselves through either current hype or right. a reputation that was built 30, 40, 50 years ago. Right. Absolutely, um, and I think that seems to be coming through the podcast. And there, there may be, there may well be people listening to this who um, really disagree. But I think in our little bubble, at least, yeah. that is the case. And it's, it's very gratifying to me that we, yeah. you can't pull the wool over the consumer's eyes anymore. I think no, it's an absolutely. important thing brands need to realize. No, I mean, even on the row, I mean, you can spend 5,000 pound on a, on a suit. Fine. I believe you're paying a little bit for the name with that. Maybe the suit is really worth maybe three or something like that. And you're paying the extra two for the name where me, I'd rather, you know, give that three or even five to the apprentice mm. and have him just cause he's trying or she's trying to get into it. And, you know, I, and I understand where they're coming from and how hard they're working. There's even a, a, an apprentice on the row actually that 
I'm trying to work out how I can pay him and get him to make me something. And I love the house and I love everything. And I actually know the cutters and mm. all that stuff. And they visited my store and all that stuff. But I really just appreciate the hard work of an apprentice. And I understand where you, where an apprentice comes from and all that stuff. So, and I really just respect him and I love the guy and all that stuff. So, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how I can get him yeah. to make me maybe a jankier suit. That's not perfect, but I'll wear it with more pride than I will with anything else, you know? So I think there's a balance with all that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, beyond hat making, you're yeah. a very stylish fellow. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what other brands uh, are, into, are you into right now? You know, that's a tough question. Like I almost just said, I'm more into, I buy the person behind the brand versus the, the name of the brand. So if there's, whether it's a maker or the designer or owner of the company, and I can bond and get a, along with them and understand their vision and they've got a heart and a passion behind what they're doing. Again, whether it's making or they're doing just, you know, a brand or a company, I more so buy into that and I enjoy supporting that and supporting those who support me too. So, I mean, um, I mean, obviously I work with Bryceland's in Asia and um, my closet is mostly from them these days. And that's not because I work with them and I'd like, you know, all that kind of stuff. I believe Ethan and Kenji, um, before we even knew each other, we met years ago, but before we knew each other, we had a similar mindset with just our own personal style and all that stuff. Um, you know, I enjoy mixing everything, um, from wearing a bespoke tailored jacket to a pair of military trousers and then a handmade pair of shoes and a vintage tie, whatever it is, you know, like all elements, I think styles an outward expression of kind of who you are. Um, and if you're just tailor-made that's wonderful and you know maybe you're just well fit and put together and you're just very smart and that's who you are and that's fine me i'm kind of a i'm a hodgepodge i'm just kind of i'm just this unique guy that you know comes from different things and whatnot so i think my style just kind of reflects that and i enjoy shopping with different brands so i mean um even ties um tie your tie in florence i think make the most wonderful ties in the world um craftsman or the craftsmanship of the tie but also the design of the tie again coming from a vintage background where i mostly only wore vintage for many years um their ties kind of reflect the 30s and 40s a little bit just the silks and um all that kind of stuff and and the brocading and the jacquard weaves and stuff like that they do the designs are very period-esque, if you will. Um, and Kaga is just the best. Um, I think he's one of the coolest guys out there. So um, I enjoy both of them. And funny, they also both work together. So we, we kind of seem to have a similar thing. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, I just enjoy supporting the maker, the small guy, you know, more than anything. Um, Love it. I can care less about buying Gucci or, you know... Um, I just walked in Connolly for the first time. I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what they do is really cool. Um, don't have anything from them, but I like how they kind of mix and match and I love how they display and mix arts with, you know, style and clothing and whatnot. But, um, I'm trying to think who else, but I mean, shoemakers I love, I love supporting shoemakers and shoes I love, but, um, whether it be Crockett and Jones to Yohei Fukuda or whatever, um, yeah, awesome. There, there's a lot of people I want to support that I also can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saving up for years to get this one item just because I want to, hey, you're doing a wonderful thing, yeah. you know, whatever it may be. I know um, that feeling. But yeah, just, even Coherence and when I love Coherence in Japan as well. There, there's way too many. I love Coherence. I've, I've sort of been trying for about two and a half years to buy a Coherence coat. I haven't yeah. quite got there yet, but yeah. it's on the list. Yeah. 
Awesome. Okay, and then my my last question for you. Bring it out. Carried away. Hit me. Is what advice would you give to uh, the guy who really wants to wear a hat or is interested in the idea of wearing a hat but hasn't quite been brave enough to take the plunge yet? Like I said, I kind of answered already, but I think it's you just have to take that step. You just have to because you're not used to something on your head. Um, You really just have to take that leap. And, And maybe it's even... Borrowing a friend's hat for a month to wear it a couple times a week to get used to it. Um, I wouldn't say buying a cheap hat to try out for a little bit before going bespoke or something because, again, reverting to what I said, getting that cheap hat isn't going to look right and fit right. So it's going to look wrong and you're still going to be in the same situation of not liking it. So it's maybe finding a hat that a friend had made that similar you know body to you, almost like trying on someone's jacket for a little bit or something like that, you know? Um so maybe it's trying a hat, but it's really just having the courage to, if you like a hat, then, you know, kind of have the balls to wear a hat, you know, just don't worry about, I think with any of this stuff, it's not about how someone else perceives you or, you know, whatever, don't care about how someone's going to think about you when you're wearing the hat. If you want to wear a hat, then wear the hat. Um, and I think you'll get comfortable in that. Love it. Yeah. Cody, uh, that was fascinating. I could have chatted to you for a whole nother hour. Yeah. But I know you've got a client to see. I do. Um, I do. So i got a fitting to do. <laughs> thank you so much indeed. No, for it's been an honor. Thank out. you for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks man. There you are, folks. That's your 45 minutes of menswear chat for this week. I hope it's scratched the itch. You know the drill by now. This podcast is produced by the creative agency Birch London. Check out their funky work by visiting birchlondon.com. Our superb sound editor and theme music maestro is Joe Boyd. You can follow him at This Is Joe Boyd. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to kindly review the podcast wherever you listen in. Your support really helps us to gain traction and allows more people to discover Handcut Radio. Once again, thank you very much indeed for being a part of the podcast, and we'll see you back here before too long. <laughs> <laughs>